In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Before we start this next segment, a warning. This conversation deals with suicide. Nothing is worth doing this. Talk to somebody. It's not as bad as it seems. Trust me. That's a plea from a grieving dad in Prince George, British Columbia. His 12-year-old son died by suicide last month. The RCMP says the boy's death was in response to online sextortion. Both his parents spoke with local news station CKPG Today, and his mom explained the blackmail that her son faced. Sending pictures and being threatened if he didn't give money or give cards. She urged parents to talk to their kids more about online risks. Be more active with your kids, even if you are active, which we were. Um, Talk to them about things. Talk to your kids about predators and all this stuff that's happening and the safety of online. Um, And you know, as much as younger kids hate their parents going on their phones, maybe we have to. I don't know, just to be aware of the surroundings and, you know, if they say, yeah, we're all good, maybe dig more into it and be like, you know, how was your date? And elaborate on that. Sextortion, the idea of demanding money from someone by threatening to publicly share intimate images, is on the rise. And police say youth between the ages of 13 and 18 are the most targeted. Dr. Sherry Madigan is a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Calgary and the Canada Research Chair in the Determinants of Child Development. Dr. Madigan, good morning. Good morning. This is, at its core, just a heartbreaking story. Um, and I think it's, it's a kind of story that for parents will send chills through their body because there are a number of things, including how do you talk to your kids about this? We'll get to that in a moment, but let's talk about the issue. In, in your practice, you've worked with youth who have experienced this, who have experienced sextortion, as it's called. What have they told you about what they've gone through? Well, it's devastating for them. And unfortunately, even though, you know, they're victims and they have incredible shame. And I think shame is one of the reasons many children don't actually come forward and and talk about it. So I think that um, it's complicated. It has to be, you know, sort of talked about. And in therapy, one of the biggest things we do is try to work through the issue, but also just discuss um, the shame that can often come with these things. How does this unfold? I mean, I said in the introduction that by definition, it's about threatening to publicly share intimate images. But for a young person who is communicating with somebody online, um, just briefly kind of explain how how this would unfold. Yeah, so a child might develop, you know, uh, a relationship with someone they, they they likely don't know face-to-face. So it might be someone they've met online or through one of the gaming systems, like through our social media. And they de- the 
the predator actually develops a trusting relationship with them. And so if a child's feeling isolated, they support them. And and through that trusting relationship, eventually, oftentimes at least, um, you know, they then encourage them to start sharing photos of themselves. And then they they ask for increasingly potentially, you know, uh, images that have a sexual nature. And, and that's, so, a, that, that, that's, that's a gradual thing that the photos, the, the, the demands for the photos, the request for the photos would increase over time. Yeah. And this is a, a typical case, but of course, every case is a little bit different. But you know, they often prey on children who might feel isolated, who might feel lonely and actually really need, a, you know, a source of support or someone they trust or someone who's showing interest in them. And then they release those, you know, eventually released a photo. So this is like a grooming process, essentially. And then and then after that, um, they threaten the child. So the child feels incredible shame, feels violated, um, feels embarrassed that they've, you know, they trusted somebody with this, with these images. And then those are being used against them in a form of blackmail. A disproportionate number of children targeted by sexual extortion are boys. Why is that? And what is it that we're missing in this conversation? You know, it's really interesting, um, this, this sex difference, because most often times girls are, you know, more often... Uh, experiencing sexual assault, but in in the case of sextortion, it is more often boys. And you know, there's a few you know spe- we can speculate why that might be. Um, boys maybe feel more shame um, about going forward and telling someone about this. So it's possible that you know they they feel like they can't reach out and talk about it because it's not something that they think. Um, has happened to anybody else, especially to boys. And so they don't reach out. And as a result, they can get in a really difficult situation where they get caught in that blackmail loop of sending more photos or sending money. And then they they start essentially feeling paralyzed, like they don't know what to do next. And and really, sadly, it can end in really um, in a tragedy. I said in the introduction that youth between the ages of 13 and 18 are the most targeted. And so what parents will want to know is how do you go about having conversations about what your child is doing online and how early should those conversations start? Walk, walk us through, I, I guess, what you've learned about how those conversations could look. Yeah, so I think you want to start these conversations way before the age of 13. Um, you want to start having them really early and often. And you can start by, you know, when kids are seven, eight, really just talking about the concept of consent and what that means and um, and just building in sort of a, a, a safe space for kids to have these conversations so that later on, if something happens, they know they can come to you. And as they get older, you want to actually build in risks that can happen, you know, online or, or offline, in fact, um, that involve a sexual nature. So you might... Um, tell kids about, you know, predators online as they get into that age 10, age 11 range. You might want to have what we often say, these what if scenarios, you know. So what if somebody asks you for a photo um, where you're nude? What, what would you do then? Um, and you just keep generating these what ifs because for most kids, they haven't experienced anything like this yet. But you're trying to create a platform where kids can really feel like they can have a conversation about it. And what one of those, you know, problem solving scenarios should be when they say, like, when you say, what if someone asks you for a nude photo, you want to get them to generate some ideas as to what they might do. Mm. So they might come, you know, hopefully they, they come and talk to you. Um, if they if you're if if for some reason they say, I'm not comfortable coming to you about that, you can say, 
well, who might you be comfortable talking to? Because we really want to create a space where you can go to someone because this is a serious situation. Well, it's also awkward and, and, and difficult. And one of the things, I mean, you know, how was your day at school? Fine. You don't want kids to shut down, right? You don't want them to just give you kind of the, the blank answer. And if you create that agency, is that a way to ensure that the kids don't shut down the conversation? Exactly. And if you start it early, then it becomes kind of normative to have these conversations. Hey, how's your online usage going? What's going on? Like becomes a part of your, you know, something that's comfortable for them. And in some ways, by creating that safe space, you're actually removing the stigma for when it does happen. And so that hopefully they can come to you and, and talk to you about it. And I and I appreciate the parents saying mm-hmm. that they were having those conversations. But it, it and and emphasizing we just need to have them early and often and coming back to it. Um because as children develop you know, sexual interest is is a typical normative adolescent developmental milestone. And so um, they are going to get more interested in sharing photos and, and you know, thinking about their online behavior and how that ov- overlaps with their sexual development. So you need to have that conversation early so that when that typical development happens, it's kind of like, you know, you've had it, uh, it's not awkward or it's not super awkward and you can actually um, have that conversation with out sort of the the strain because it's been normative to have it over time. Just briefly and finally on this, I mean, what about that idea of monitoring your kids' online activity? So much of our lives are wrapped up in what's on our phones. And you, you know that if you tell kids, some kids, not to have this account, and they might create, you know, kind of a fake account for their close friends or something like that. But at the same time, parents are wondering whether there's something that they're missing. Should they be, should we be as parents monitoring our kids' online activity? I mean, it's a, it's a really good question, and I think, um, you know, the, the truth is they're smarter than us on these online devices. So I do think that if you you can do some monitoring if you're worried about your child, and I think you have to adapt that monitoring decision based on the individual needs of your child and what if you think your child's at risk. But you can start early by setting these boundaries, having expectations, revisiting what it's like to be a good digital citizen, um, making sure that, you know, your child is is sort of following that. And then if you're having open conversations about online usage, I think it's better to sit down with them and say, tell me what's going on on this phone. Tell me what you're doing. Tell me what's happening out there. Ask in the third person, have, do you know anyone who's been sextorted or who's sending nudes? What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. You know, you take the pressure off the conversation about them and make it a conversation together. And I think if you can, um, you know, if you can create a space where it's a discussion together, then they're going to feel more comfortable telling you when something goes wrong. This is hard though, right? I mean, I ask you this as a psychologist, you're also a mom as well. Yes. Yeah. It's a very hard conversation. And I've been there. I've I've been there where I've done the what if scenarios and then and then one of those what if scenarios came true. And I had to with your I was own so child. Glad that, with my own child. And and that's hard, you know. And the well, I had to take a deep breath and say, you know, thank you so much for coming to me. And let's talk about this and what we can do. And um, you know, and said, I'm so proud of you for thinking this through, for coming to me. I hope you can come to, to me again in the future. But it was hard. I can imagine. Sherry, thank you very much for this. Thanks for having me. Dr. Sherry Madigan is a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Calgary, also the Canada Research Chair in the Determinants of Child Development. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. 
For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Signe Arneson is an Associate Executive Director for the Canadian Centre for Child Protection. She joins us now. Signe, good morning to you. Good morning. How big of an issue is this, 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 this issue of sextortion of kids and teens right now in this country? Well, we can't keep up. We're completely inundated as the national tip line. In the last 15 months, we've processed nearly 5,000 reports involving victims of sextortion, and we are the tip of the iceberg. We have a public safety emergency on our hands, and we are losing children to this. So something's got to give here because the current strategies of looking to parents 100% to keep their kids safe is absolutely not working. Do we know who is often behind these cases? The RCMP in, in British Columbia told the CBC that police are looking for a suspect, but the issue is that investigations into sextortion can be lengthy. They might extend beyond the province's borders. We think of the story of, of, of Amanda Todd, 15-year-old who died by suicide after cyberbullying, and that, that case led across the ocean to Europe, for example. Do we know who, who is often behind these cases? Well, if you're talking about sextortion and specifically financial sextortion where boys, 90% of those cases involve uh, boys, it's coming out of regions like Nigeria and the Ivory Coast where it really is organized criminal networks mm. going after they have developed a, a perfect recipe and strategy for targeting boys to get them to do something very quickly, sexually, on screen, they record it on the other side, and then the threats begin. So you either send money, or they've snagged their contact list, they say they're going to send it to family, friends. Um, and it's true, the shame just uh, creeps in, and it becomes incredibly challenging. And these kids are really being terrorized online. And so parents will be alarmed, and we spent a good deal of time talking about what parents should do. But to your point, what's wrong with keeping the focus on what parents should do in these sorts of cases? Well, how is it possible to know what your kids are doing 24-7 on their devices? When, uh, you know, kids were growing up without technology, ask anyone if their parents knew everything they were doing, and there'd be an immediate chuckle, and yeah. the answer is no. It, you cannot be policing your kids 24-7 online. And it really has been a strategy by the technology companies to saddle parents 100% with a responsibility. So they build the technology and the platforms. They're quick to release it to market. They know that children are pr a predominant user of the platform, but they put no guardrails in place to ensure their safety. And we end up uh, dealing with this issue on the back end. The harm occurs and then the police uh, have to get involved, agencies like ours. But we need to be tackling this on the front end. These technology companies have a responsibility. Uh, he shouldn't have even been on Snap. You have to be 13 to be on Snap. Let me, let me, let me, let me just say Snap is, is, is Snapchat. This is, and the family of the boy in this case said that he often used Snapchat to communicate with others. Well, yes, and we know that where uh, the recipe for sextortion in this particular case, uh, the research is showing it starts with Instagram and it moves over to Snap. 
So these companies know that they're a playground for this type of predation and they are not doing enough to be keeping kids safe. We got a statement from Snapchat that says that they've introduced new safety features for families that, quote, uh, have the goal of giving parents more insight into who their teens are communi communicating with on Snapchat. You don't think that, that apps like this are doing enough. What else would you like to see social media companies do? Well, they have to be regulated because we've been hearing for decades that social media companies prioritize child uh, safety. Their, their standard line is we have zero tolerance for child uh, sexual exploitation on our platforms. Yet on the back end, we continue to see an escalation. Like I said, for sextortion, it's a public safety emergency. So if what they were doing was working, we wouldn't be where we are today. And so you want you so, that, that that comes from the federal government, that sort of regulation? Well, sure. We need governments to step in and regulate like they do in all other spaces. In the offline world, we do this on a regular basis. We understand we have a social responsibility to keep children safe. You don't, uh, you know, permit kids to, you don't let play structures go up on playgrounds. Kids fall off, they break their arm, and then you run around and blame parents because they weren't there to catch them. You know, you go to the manufacturer of the playground and you say, there are safety standards. You can't build this so that kill kids uh, are likely to be injured. Mm -hmm. We know, SNAP did their own research about a year ago. And they released that two-thirds of teens and adults on their platform had been targeted for sextortion. Like, at what level do we have to let this get to before governments step in and regulate these companies and require that they're safe? Arif Arani, the Minister of Justice, sent us a statement that reads, in part, we've included sextortion to the list of designated offenses for which an individual could be required to register for the National Sex Offender Registry in our Senate Government Bill S-12. Does that go far enough? Well, we're still talking about it on the criminal side. Mm. So these individuals in Nigeria and the Ivory Coast and other countries around the world, they don't care what our laws are. It means nothing to them. So that isn't really helpful. We need to be preventing. I mean, it's helpful, of course, in the context of what Canadians require. But the problem is, is that these offenders and these individuals are coming at kids and targeting them from all around the world. And we're losing children to this. So why are we not looking at the platforms and asking them to ensure? What about age verification? What about preventing uh, a proper moderation within live streaming? Um, all of these things need to be happening. And the companies are profiting to the tunes of billions of dollars and offloading the responsibility for safety 100% onto parents. It, it's not working. Are you optimistic, we're just about out of time, but are you optimistic that we go back to the heartbreaking nature of this story, that this is the kind of thing that would spur action? Well, I don't know where we have to take this to, to mm -hmm. get some action. He was 12 years old. We have lost a boy that was 12 years old. This is crazy. And it continues to happen. So... You know, something is something has to give here. We have the UK that has passed an online safety bill, really critical, but we need other governments in the world to follow. This is what has to happen. Signe, thank you very much. Thank you. Signe Arneson is the Associate Executive Director for the Canadian Centre for Child Protection. If you are in emotional distress, you can call the Suicide Prevention Line 1-833-456-456. 4566 or the Kids Help Phone Line 1 800 668 6868. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.